Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. Vikram here from Quantlayer, joined by Fizan, also known as the Wizard. What's going on, Fizan? Hey, everyone. Not much. So, a couple of quick things wanted to cover. Just uh, so we're going to be at ETH Denver, ETH Denver conference in February. I think we're going to be there February fifteenth or seventeenth or so. So, if you're there, definitely hit us up. We'd love to meet up. They've set up podcasting space for different groups. So we could also probably record with you. We'd love to hear what kind of projects you're working on and whatnot. And I think we actually, to to sign up for ETH Denver, we had to use, uh, kind of go through this uh, very specific kind of UX process, right, Fizan? Yeah. So essentially you have to download an app, uh, Uport, to your phone. Uh, and I think it's made by consensus. And it's essentially a way of creating and like associating your identity with the application for ETH Denver. So, you know, they have different like levels of applications for people that are going to be building or attending or whatnot. And so what you essentially do is you create this account on your Uport app. And then when you apply, you associate your identity with that application. And then you can also stake coins to like basically put your application at the top of the pile for review. So it was, it was Interesting process. There were definitely a few UX things that need tweaking, but the app is still on release, so I'm sure sure that'll improve. But it was definitely an interesting process. Hadn't seen that before. Yeah, the process was basically you went to an application website and they had a, it had like a specific code for you or your team. Um, in our case, it was for our team, and you also had to download the Uport app. Um, and then when you start the application process on the web, uh, you know, you click start and it gives you like a QR code, you scan it with the app and then you can create your account with the app. I have iOS. I think you're on Android, right? Fizon? I don't yeah. know. What's that? Was that the same yeah, process? Yeah, it was basically you? the same. Yeah. Okay. And then once you create your account, it links you up with the, I'm guessing it links you up with the uh, unique ID associated with your team and yourself. Yep. So, you know, if you go to the Uport website, it sounds like they're trying to this is what they say. They say, Uport returns ownership of identity to the individual. Uport's open identity system allows users to register their own identity on Ethereum, send and request credentials, sign transactions, and so forth. So it looks like they're building like a, I think the app is kind of like the first version of what they're building, and then they want to build a stack on top of that. But I think like that is a definite use case for this kind of technology, right? Yeah, the first thing that popped into my head was the idea of subscription lists for mailing lists. From the user perspective, like when I sign up for a mailing list and I like, you know, I'm giving them authorization to send me email. And if they're like a trustworthy party and they've been sending emails with a low bounce rate, like those emails get through. And then if I don't want them to send emails anymore, I have to ask them to unsubscribe. And I know there's some legal requirement for them to do so. But essentially, you're trusting that they're going to stop sending you email. 
And as far as the, you know, the email sending party, like let's say SendGrid or whatever, they essentially use your reputation as a sender on whether or not to send the emails or not. So if you had a reasonably good reputation, there's actually nothing stopping you from sending out a bunch of spam and trashing your reputation. But in this case, it would be neat if you could somehow, you know, using your account, create an authorization for different mailing lists and be able to revoke that as you please. And then the the actual mail senders, like a SendGrid, have something more than just your the, the reputation of the like mailing list sender to use as a decision for whether the email should go through or not. So it improves bounce rates for them. And as a user, you're less likely to get spam. Yep. Another thing the whole application process has is this, uh, I guess, staking mechanism. And I think you mentioned it briefly. Basically, you can stake your application for yeah. uh, faster review. That was kind of interesting. Yeah, and what's neat there is, again, if you have something that's like, you have some sort of application form or something that's very heavy on bot spam, it's a pretty good way of, you know, it's like a staking-based captcha or recaptcha. Yep. You know, accomplishing the same sort of thing, but with a little bit of monetary requirement. Right. I mean, it would make sense. Uh, I, I think they're just doing it as kind of a proof of concept is interesting enough, but it would make sense for like a highly trafficked, I don't know what a highly trafficked application form would be, but like some kind of highly trafficked site where you can handle like bot spam and whatnot. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier today that you spoke to uh, a company that's working on the on the scraping side. As a, what was their name again? Cloud Crawler? Yeah, Cloud Crawler. So I had met one of their founders at uh, the CTO Summit, which I, you know, we spoke about a couple of weeks ago. And uh, essentially... They're building this platform that lets you set up a whole bunch of scrapers and scraping jobs. And it doesn't have to be scrapers, you know, they can hit APIs, they can hit files and documents. It's essentially a way of like ingesting data on a scheduled basis, running some amount of like analysis on that data. And then it spits out either, you know, JSON files or CSVs that are accessible via API. So you know, the reason this was interesting is like for us adding sources, there's a lot of different types of sources that require, you know, going out and, and scraping data. And there's like our interest is mainly on, okay, we have this data. What can we do with it to see if something is an interesting alert or not? The actual process of getting that data and making sure it's good is it's a lot of work that doesn't add like it's not our core problem that we're trying to solve so we'd rather just pay for it. One way to think about it is like in terms of analyzing data versus like getting data and yeah. the scraping aspect of it, you know, every website is different, like table rows are in different places, field names are different, but it's kind of like a fundamentally a similar problem like one, scraping one site versus scraping another, you might run into a couple issues, but it's kind of that's the part that's like getting the data. But as an analyst, like you care more about actually analyzing the data. So anything that speeds up the process of getting the data, or in our case, like scraping, it, it helps a lot. Yeah, there's a whole class of problems that have to do with a versioning because sites change over time. So your scrapers may need to change, but you might still want to have some referential integrity in terms of a the scraping code and even the structure of the site that you were scraping. You know, rate limiting. Using like a pool of IPs with a proxy, so you're not always scraping with the same IP. Like even within rate limiting, there's rate limiting. There's making sure you have some sort of like exponential backoff. There's a whole class of problems that arise when you're doing scraping, just retrying 
uh, well, data what's auditing. The they, exponential backoff. Yeah. So the idea is that if I am hitting a site too frequently, right? Like, let's say I have ten scrapers, and what the first one like, that that hit a site every minute. If the request with one of them fails, the scraper should then make the next one at two minutes. And if that one fails, it should try at four minutes and then it should try at eight minutes. Okay. Because the idea is if, if you somehow have taken the service down or there's some issue, just hammering it again and again at the same frequency is not going like, to help. And so exponential back off is you know, just make your retries at increasing intervals uh, to like decrease load on the, the service that you're hitting. Yep. And then the second piece of that that you can also run into is a, a jitter. So again, like in this scenario of 10 scrapers, if we back off all 10 scrapers, but two minutes later, they all hit at the exact same time, uh, you haven't really necessarily solved, you know, you might still be taking that service down or hitting a rate limit. So you want to stagger those things so that two mi minutes later, but maybe within a 30 second window, those 10 different scrapers fire. So there's all these like little things that, like seem like small, small little problems, but cumulatively, it's a lot of work to actually build an effective scraper and then scaling so you can actually hit thousands of pages at the same time. So it's, it's like, it's not something we want to build. So we've just been auditing different solutions. And this was a pretty impressive one because they take care of all of this for you. One of the other things I really like that they do that I haven't seen is the data auditing. And so with the data auditing, you know, let's say that I have some site that I'm scraping and I take the data and I categorize it into different, different categories. And I'll give a very simple example. I'm scraping a blog and every post has like a title, an author, and a body. Mm -hmm. And you know, my scraper is literally just a bit of JavaScript that knows where to get each of those fields. And so what I can do is I can look at the data and see that for this specific scraper, for this site, 95% of the posts uh, tend to have a title. And so I can, I can basically, which is like essential for that data being useful. So I can set a threshold that says that, you know, if as I'm scraping, that number drops below 90%, uh, flag it because something's gone wrong. And so that's a really nice feature because if you're scraping hundreds of things, it lets you start automating your uh, process for like making sure your integrity of your data is good. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So there's a bunch of cool stuff they're doing that are, you know, like problems you don't necessarily want to solve unless your like product is a scraper. Yep. And um, I guess, what is the interface? Like when you say you have to write the scrapers, are you writing it in, I don't know, some kind of API of theirs? Like how does that work? So there is a web-based interface you can go to to actually manage all of your, you can see your data, you can see your scrapers, you can see the jobs running, like there's a, a dashboard that you would expect. But then for the actual writing of the scrapers, they've written a Chrome extension that is built into your dev tools. So it works exactly the way you'd uh, want it to work, which is, you know, let's say I go to this, your blog, and I open up my inspector, because that's where I'm looking at the structure of your site, how the, you know, how the markup is laid out, looking for like how I can scrape stuff. Mm -hmm. And so essentially they have a t their own tab within an inspector that comes as part of this extension. And so I can write the JavaScript code right there for that specific scraper and I can see what the output would be on that site. So it's a pretty nice way of doing it versus, you know, I've used some Python based tools before where 
you go to your text editor, write some code, and then go run it and see what the output is. You go right. back to your text editor. Right. This is nice because you're literally, you know, you have your website on the left, inspector on the right, or, you know, whichever side you like to have your inspector. Yep. <laughs> and you're just seeing your results as you're writing the code. So that was cool. That is pretty cool. Uh, to, just on the crypto side, like if looking, if we wanted to scrape something like Etherscan ballpark, like what would be the time investment involved in that? I think it would be pretty, I mean, I haven't written one of these yet, so I don't know. Yep. But I think that, you know, once you're set up on the platform, I imagine that it's like, how much jQuery would it take to extract the data you care about from the page? Probably not a lot. Right. You're essentially just using your, your regular JavaScript and uh, jQuery to just like select the data that you care about and, you know, assign it certain categories or values. And so, like for relatively straightforward, well-structured data, it's really not more than a few dozen lines of code. Yeah, that's pretty cool. One thing that GitHub announced a uh, a couple weeks back, and GitHub is a source control repository company. And what that means basically is, like, if you're a developer, you're a team, you have a team of developers, you can store your source code on their system. They got bought by Microsoft, like last summer sometime, I think like in like June or July, and or maybe a little later. And um, I think that freaked out a lot of people because GitHub had a had pretty high cred, right, in the dev community, the, yeah. the whole GitHub brand. It's, I think it's probably the most popular tool for storing your Git repos out there. Yeah, no, it definitely is. But even like broadly just cred, like street cred yeah. in the developer community was pretty high. Yeah, that's fair. And I think they, after they got bought, people were saying, like, of course, people were saying this that like they sold out, sold out because well, they, what was you know, the, there's people still have the fear of Microsoft from their what was their old philosophy was embrace, extend, extinguish. I think okay. is what they used <laughs> to do with uh, software companies, and so I think people are worried about the extinguish phase. Yep. <laughs> you know, but Microsoft's changed a lot since Nadella came on board. I even from just talking to developers who have started doing things like embracing um, like via Visual Studio Code, for example. This is a minor this is a minor example, but it does show yeah. like how they are caring about developers. So VS Code is a code editor, much like Vim or Emacs, Atom, Sublime, is a whole bunch of those. And VS Code, I switched over to VS Code too. I mean, I use it, I use Vim yeah, mode for it, but it's just, it's easier to use because like it's very quickly, you can install like the plugins you need. The copy and paste is like, well, for whatever reason, a major issue with them. Uh, or maybe I just don't have my config set up right. But uh, it's just made just general development a bit easier and a bit faster. But taking that a little further, I think they've put a lot of effort into building out tools that are more developer friendly. Even their Azure yeah. platform, I would say. We haven't taken on an Azure project directly, but working with other developers who have, it seems like the whole Azure system is, you know, we've talked about AWS and AWS console and like how there's a lot of complexity around using it. And I think Microsoft is putting a lot of effort in making uh, the Azure console very easy to use. So the fear of Microsoft like buying GitHub to shut them down, I think is pretty unfounded. Yeah. But I can understand fear of change. I think that's fair. I think people have long memories from like maybe the 90s. And then... I think Microsoft's shift into focusing more on open source and cloud is is relatively new, so I think people are still just wary. Yeah. 
till they see how it plays out. Yeah, so got, uh, GitHub got bought by Microsoft, and previously they had a basic, they had a free and a paid version as a individual user. And the free version, you could host as many public repos. I think it was unlimited public repos, right? Yep. And then they had a paid version where you could have uh, private repos. And what they announced recently, and a private repo is a repo that you you're hosting source code you don't want people to see, and it's not like. You're not being clandestine or anything. You just maybe have reasons for your own where you don't want to share it. Maybe it's not ready for the world or whatever. So they just announced that they're going to be offering unlimited private repos to free accounts. And you get up to three collaborators on those repos. So that was kind of interesting. What do you think the play is there? I mean, obviously, I don't know the actual numbers, but my suspicion is that they make most of their revenue from like the organization and enterprise accounts, you know, the free repos with three collaborators, that's mostly just individual devs. Yep. So those are never the ones that are going to be monetized like 10x, 100x, like what they're, you know, the $7, I think is what the cheapest plan used to cost. But like that developer is unlikely to pay 70 or $700 down the line. It's the like organizations that as they grow, you know, you can monetize more. I don't think they were making that much money from those $7 accounts. I don't think there was any, like, that was a big source of being able to grow revenue. And then I think the big one is, I suspect they were losing people to GitLab and Bitbucket who were offering free repos already. And so if you have a group of people that you're not monetizing that well, or can't monetize that well, but it's actually costing you market share, then... Like you don't want to lose those developers because you can't monetize them that well, but a lot of them might be the ones that make the decision whether to use GitHub when at their work or use something else. Yep. So you know, like you know, you know how that whole phrase, like if the product's free, then you're the product. I don't even know if I'm saying it right, but basically the idea is like yeah. if you get something for free, it's very likely that something about you is being sold to someone else. Yeah. And Peter Todd, uh, Bitcoin dev, he he tweeted, uh, I'm actually slightly annoyed by this. As I currently pay dollars whatever per month to GitHub, now I actually don't have a reason to. I'd rather use services I pay for with money rather than who knows what evil business practices, right? And, you know, I'll admit I haven't read through GitHub's, like, terms. I don't actually know what they might be doing with the data for associated with like users who are using private repos. But it does like just being more and more into Bitcoin and crypto more broadly, you know, these kind of things are kind of interesting to consider. Like one additional piece of information it gives away, like if you actually go and look at your GitHub user profile, it says whether or not you're a paying user because you get a little badge that says pro, right? Yeah. And perhaps like, I probably don't care. Like I don't care that it says pro, or doesn't say pro, but there are probably people who are, right? And I, I did check the settings. There's actually no way to hide that. So there is like some kind of, I don't know, what do you, what do you, what, you, what are your take? Yeah, so with regards to the Peter Todd tweet, I understand where he's coming from in terms of just wanting to pay for a service rather than have it be free and who knows how they're uh, monetizing. I think that in this particular case, it's probably not as nefarious, only because fundamentally it is a SaaS product. Like they're going to make their money from like selling either enterprise subscriptions, organization subscriptions, things like that. 
I guess maybe there are other ways they could monetize if they don't want to serve ads. They could maybe do stuff with uh, like job postings or helping recruiters target you because there's probably a lot of money in that. But I see where he's coming from, but I don't think it's as bad as like your typical just pure ad tech play, I guess is what I'd say. Yep. And GitLab, which is uh, pretty much a competitor to GitHub focused solely on repositories, they posted a response to this. And they said, at GitLab, we think that repositories will become a commodity. I think Microsoft will try to generate more revenue with people using Azure instead of paying for repos. We're focusing on making a single application for the entire DevOps lifecycle that can replace a lot of other tools. Or as Stavros Korostakis phrased it, my move to GitLab was basically come for the free repos, stay for the rest of the amazing features. I will not be moving off of it and my new repos will keep being on GitLab. And they have a little like chart comparison between themselves and GitHub. And basically the, the, the chart basically says like, yeah, we have private repositories. We have unlimited number of them. Most of the things that GitHub offers in their paid version, we offer for free. We also offer larger capacity. But that's basically the gist of their comparison. And I guess they're pursuing this like what they call a multi-cloud maturity model. That is one of those things that needs further explanation because it's not self-evident. Yeah, even from reading what they posted, like a couple blog articles about this thing, and I think they're just talking about the cloud. Like they're talking about how there's multiple service providers in the cloud, and how they're likely to be agnostic to it. Like Microsoft, I mean Azure. Okay, so AWS, Azure, Google Cloud, and other cloud providers. And to me, it sounds like they're trying to bucket. GitHub along with Microsoft and Azure, but they're trying to position themselves as being like agnostic to whatever cloud environment you end up choosing. That's that's what I kind of get from this. Okay, that's interesting. So because they're not tied to any of the cloud providers, if your DevOps setup requires using multiple cloud providers, they're better equipped, I guess, to serve you in that. I, that that's sense. the claim. I mean, that's the claim, but there's nothing. I mean, the development of Git, of course, is pretty phenomenal. But just what GitHub is doing or what GitLab is doing, how different are they fundamentally? Well, so GitLab does give you more of the lifecycle in terms of, I've like used it a little bit. So you can do more of like your CI and your automated deploy process on there. Whereas I guess they're implying that that's what the GitHub and Microsoft partnership will do, where like the latter stage will be an on-ramp to Azure, whereas for GitLab, it's cloud agnostic. Okay. So like what happens if Amazon ends up buying them? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. You got to <laughs> find someone. <laughs> like what happens to this, uh, the multi-cloud maturity model? I don't know. It just, it feels a little bit like contrived. Yeah, but you can see where they're coming from in terms of like that's their best pitch. Yep. And I remember after that Microsoft acquisition of GitHub got announced, there were a few crypto projects that started moving over to GitLab. I think one of the projects in the Monero project moved over to GitLab. But as usual, there was like a massive amount of commotion for about 24 hours on Twitter and then uh, you know things kind of died <laughs> down. I mean, people continue to use GitHub. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well. That's that about sums it up. It was a really big deal for a while. Like everyone was talking about it, and I think it's just back to business as usual. 
Yeah. Maybe you got two days. You know, I used GitLab quite a while ago, so I'm sure it's matured since then, but I, I did really like it. I think it is a nice service if you want to integrate your CI and like, it's like they're trying to do the whole life cycle. Like if you wanted to do your task management and your have it be your, you know, where you host your repositories and where you do your CI CD, like it is a pretty good solution and you can self-host relatively easily. So you wouldn't hook up with Circle on GitLab? They have that built in? Uh, yeah, you could just do it yourself. Oh, okay. Yeah. Got it. So, it's, and you, again, you could also avoid using, if you wanted to, you know, your Trello board or whatnot and just keep that within GitLab as well. Okay. So like we've been using Zen Hub on top of GitHub. Right. And they have their own built-in thing? Yeah. So that that was be built-in as well. So they're, they're okay. really trying to just make it the, like this is the one-stop shop for your like app lifecycle. Yep. So another topic that, Along those lines that we've wanted to talk about for a while is just uh, the broad topic of DevOps, like what it is, how it works. You know, when people talk about it, I think technical and non-technical people are hearing about this topic more and more. Yeah. And it, it is a very important topic to pay attention to, but probably worth worth talking about for a little while. Yeah, and this is a subject I have so many opinions on because just having, you know, having seen a lot of different projects, what I find is DevOps either gets, it's like something that people want to spend as little effort on and it ends up costing you in terms of either performance, reliability, or money. Or people get really fixated on optimizing for specific things rather than like looking at the whole picture of what, like what problem they're trying to solve and end up spending a lot of time or money on something that's like not that important. And you know, I just want to establish like for like the DevOps discussion, like our context when it comes to DevOps, if you're Google, you're going to do things very, very, very differently. And you have a different set of requirements in terms of scale and reliability and the resources you have available versus if you're a startup or, you know, a small to medium sized company with a reasonable amount of users that's, you know, trying to deploy or scale an app. And so, you know, obviously we're more focused on the latter where, you maybe have a few people who are dedicated to DevOps or more often it's a role that is handled by the development team. So within that context, wanted to discuss a, a few different things. Yep. So just to start off, you know, what is DevOps? And there's a quote by Atlassian that I think sums it up. DevOps is a set of practices that automates the processes between software development and IT teams in order that they can build, test, and release software faster and more reliably. The concept of DevOps is founded on building a culture of collaboration between teams that historically functioned in relative silos. And to expand on that last line, I think what they mean is before you had your, like you might build your app, like you have this build, and then you hand it over to someone that is responsible for running you know, like a a typical sysadmin role that's responsible for running a server and then your build runs on that server. So just to step back for a second, like if we divided this up into responsibilities, you know, you have like stakeholders, a PM, the actual development team, they build the app, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's kind of like a handoff process where, you know, you have the app, you hand it off to the DevOps people, they deploy it. And it's not necessarily like chronological, it's it's not like oh idea to web app to deployment to you know customer it's like all this stuff is kind of going on at the same time but just to kind of clarify like often your 
the team that builds your web application will be different from the team that manages the entire infrastructure on top of which the web application is being served. Yeah, absolutely. But I think what we're finding is, you know, historically where it was a very siloed role, you then had, like, at least, you know, from my experience, there was the increase of popularity of Rails and the rise of Heroku. DevOps became very much like a one command sort of function where, okay, I have this web application. Maybe there's Redis and Postgres and some jobs that run, and I just push it to Heroku and like it works. And like, I'm not worried about that anymore. Or if I'm, you know, maybe a, a larger firm that doesn't want to spend that kind of money, I reproduce some of that functionality internally. But as like the architecture of your typical web app, and when I say typical web app, I mean what a like startup sized team can reasonably build. Over the last 10 years, that's become much more elaborate. Before you might have your Rails web app, Redis, Postgres, and some sidekick jobs that are running. Now you might, you know, you might add to that like a lot more services that are running. You maybe have some serverless functions like AWS Lambda is running. You have different, especially with Elixir, you have different uh, different nodes doing different tasks. And so your your app architecture ties into how you deploy and the roles have become a lot more mixed. So I think I see a lot more like developers having to be involved as opposed to just handing off the DevOps role. You know, it's funny that the way you're describing it, because I just, out of curiosity, while we were talking, I pulled up uh, Heroku's Wikipedia page. I was curious about their history. So they started in 2007, okay? The prototype development took around six months for their initial initial product, but they had a ton of drawbacks. So Heroku faced drawbacks because of lack of proper market customers as many app developers use their own tools and environment. And so two years later, in Jan of 2009, a new platform was launched, which was built from scratch after three months. So they just wiped pretty much everything they did and then built something up by scratch. So I, I'm not familiar with it. I don't know if you are, like how they were able to develop so much mindshare within the Rails uh, community, at least, and then onto like other platforms. Like I wonder what it took for a lot of these developers to decide that, okay, we don't necessarily need to use all our own hand-rolled stuff or you know custom th- tooling and decide to use Heroku. Get push Heroku master. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just being able to deploy with one command, I think, was huge. Yeah. I know, you know, we both started off by learning Rails. And like when I was new, being able to just deploy immediately before I actually knew how a lot of this infrastructure stuff worked was huge and being able to just like get up and running and be able to do useful stuff quickly. Yep. So I, you know, there's a few things that I wanted to discuss. One is just about this idea of uh, leverage. So, you know, we mentioned that like you might have applications now that are running different services on different nodes. Maybe you're using serverless functions. Like you have a more complex architecture than just using Heroku. And if you're a smaller team or a, a startup, you can't necessarily just have like, you know, oh, we've hired four DevOps people and that solved our problem. Like you need to be able to do a lot with more limited resources. And so I think a good DevOps practice is a competitive advantage because it's going to help you scale. Like you'll be able to reach more users with the like, same amount of budget or the same amount of uh, human hours. It's you know, having a good process in place is going to improve your site reliability and security. That's just a matter of like having good practices. 
you know, in relation to that first point about scale, again, for the same amount of budget, or I would argue like code complexity, you can have better performance. And what I mean by that is you might often when you're prototyping, you write something, it works. But when you, let's say you throw 10,000 users at it, it doesn't work anymore. And you have to go write code to improve performance. Yep. And what ends up happening in that scenario is you make the app faster, but anything that touches that code path, you tend to it tends to slow down the velocity of adding new features because there's like this complexity that you introduced as a result of trying to get more performance out of it. So can you give a like a kind of concrete example there? Yeah. So a big one is just uh, tool selection. So you know, let's actually use the example of using. Uh, you know, one, like one of the reasons we went with Elixir instead of uh, Rails for our own own projects. If we wanted to have a thousand WebSocket connections or two thousand WebSocket connections, right? Because we've got a bunch of users that are receiving alerts in real time. Yep. With Elixir, I can just run that on my web node, probably on a single web node, and spend twenty bucks a month, and we're good to go. If I want to do the same thing in Rails, what that probably involves, and I, you know, I'm less familiar, honestly, with Action Cable, so maybe it's gotten better. But back when we used to do Rails and WebSocket work, it was setting up a separate server uh, to handle like Fay, and a, you know, it was a relatively expensive deploy to get those same same amount of users handled. And so then you have the service that's running the web app, and then you had the service that's running Fay, and then you have to, you know communicate between them. And you just added this complexity, both at the code level potentially, and also at your uh, deployment level, that's going to affect your velocity because everything that interacts with either that deployment or that code path needs to consider like a more complex environment. Yep. Whereas with Elixir, if you're just running it on the same node in the same app, you don't have those same concerns. So I think that in my mind, you know, that's that's a form of leverage where if I build a, you know, I can build a feature, deploy it to a thousand users with a lot less effort potentially as a result of tool, nothing but tool selection. And then subsequent features that interact with that piece of code will also be able to be built and deployed faster. Yep. So I think that, you know, there's this idea of, of scaling and people just think of it uh, purely in terms of performance. But I think you know they're scaling from the way your users perceive, like the amount of users your app can handle. I think there's also a component that is the velocity of your development. So being able to keep things simpler for longer, and also having a good DevOps process that doesn't get in the way of your development yep. affects the actual velocity of your application, and probably has, I would argue, also uh, because things are simpler, it's easier to keep things reliable and secure. Yep. I would also see say that the the ability to deploy quickly is a positive more is helps with morale for your team. Like if your deployment process is this like complex process, it takes like four hours to get a new build out. Like your team won't like it. Whoever is going to be doing the actual actual deployment process will not like it. And that's going right. to slow stuff down. It just will. I know it sounds, and maybe it sounds a little counterintuitive. It's like, what's the big deal? Like you've allocated time and a resource, but it doesn't really work like that. If you're, uh, on the other hand, if your DevOps process is fast, it's very likely it'll speed up deployment and feature development work more quickly too, because people will kind of be incentivized to like, oh, 
it only takes me, you know, 20 minutes or 10 minutes to get um, a new build out. Let me just finish this real fast and I can deploy it. Yeah. And it has a huge impact on onboarding as well, because again, the reality is you're not going to be able to hire your whole team of like senior developers that understand both your code stack and your infrastructure stack really well and can just like move between the two seamlessly. Right. You, you yeah. realistically, your team will be made up of people that are less familiar with, especially the DevOps process. But yeah, to have that velocity and have that comfort level, you want everyone to be able to, like, everyone should be able to push code into production on a small team and feel like safe about doing so. Yep. And be able to do so in a reasonable amount of time. I think that's a reasonable target. And I think having a good DevOps process is essential for that. And the other big one, both for the onboarding process, but also for the development velocity is being able to spin up multiple environments. You know, you might have production, you might have staging, but let's say, and I mean, we've seen this happen where, you know, we come onto a client project and they're able to just give us a totally separate environment to work in with production like data, like quickly. Yep. That's and huge. that's awesome. Right. Because the, the converse of that is, you know, we're billing a week of time while they get set up, Right. Uh, and yeah. it only hurts them. And even after that, like you're doing like, you know, they have the one staging environment that you're doing stuff on, which is causing QA to find bugs that like they shouldn't. And then you're spending time trying to like, you know, just debug something that wouldn't have happened if you had your own environment. Yep. And there's just a whole class of problems you can avoid. And then you're also likely to be in a much better position when it comes to disaster recovery. If you can get environments spun up very quickly, it's likely that you can recover very quickly if like something horrible happens and you lose all your shit. Yep. <laughs> and I wanted to give some example. Like we talk about leverage. I wanted to give some concrete examples of stuff that we've been able to do with no more than a handful of developers and generally no more than two or three people involved in the DevOps process for uh, client work or internal work over the years. And then after that, I want to get into some like specific techniques that we use. Yep. So, you know, one project we worked on a while back pre Quantlayer was, uh, you know, this large company that had like physical servers and they had, you know, high six figure hardware costs and mid five figure like everything else costs. And I think if I'm not mistaken, like, probably half a dozen people that were just dedicated to like the more of a sysadmin type role. And just by a re-architecting the app to use like a more modern stack and like do things more efficiently, um, but also moving to something that can be like quickly deployed on the cloud, you know, the monthly costs were brought down to like the low to mid five figures from that six figure range. And there was a performance increase. Yep. Another one was, uh, you know, this is one that you and I both worked on the back end. In about six months, uh, we built a system that can handle hundreds of thousands of requests every few seconds. And it was, and like, that's doing uh, image ingestion and manipulation. So, you know, you would be sending images into the system. It's able to ingest them all, manipulate them, submit various orders. And I think the, I, the server costs for this were in the high hundreds of dollars. Yep. Um, and it was, you know, two dev six months for both of the DevOps process and the uh, bu building the app itself. And, you know, even for some of our internal stuff, like we have, you know, like our service that captures SEC filings that we use internally. I think we spend something like $50 a month and it's been running and has never gone down for about 
of thing approaching three years now. Yep. And I think I, we spent four days standing that up and it's like, it's been good. Yep. And obviously the alerting platform we're working on now, I mean, there's been days where I think you added over 10 sources and later that day we're able to deploy. And again, server costs relatively low, but it can handle like thousands of connections, uh, hundreds of sources, no problem. So with like these kind of projects, one thing that hits me every time is that the... Like it's not as easy necessarily as Git push Heroku master, at least on the Elixir side, because there's a lot more. Like if we want to take advantage of what Elixir and Phoenix have to offer with OTP, like we can't do that. Every project is like still a little bit different on the deployment side. But the goal, I guess, is to what? To basically, you know, you want to keep costs down, of course. You want speed to deployment to be fast, so forth and so on. But how do you go about like thinking about the right approach to deploying uh, a new project? Yeah, this that's a good question because the reality is, you know, if you get someone that is not going to have a huge user load or is unlikely to see crazy like scale or, or growth and the app is relatively simple, you should probably just build it in Rails or Elixir if that's what you're familiar with or whatever you're familiar with and just deploy it on Heroku and be done with it. Because, you know, those DevOps hours are... It's like like you said, it's never that simple when you're doing a custom deployment. So if you think that you don't won't need it, it's best to just avoid it. That being said, I think we've seen so many projects now where what was shipped to production was basically prototype level in terms of its ability to scale, and it was never really going to work. Um, we've done some performance improvements projects where like with a hundred users it stops working, and a lot of those things are pretty easy to identify because like you can see in the structure of like what the code is doing, like, oh, this is going to have to make like all these database calls or have to build this like huge data. You know, a lot of those tend to be more on the code side than in the DevOps side, but sometimes your solutions are uh, on the DevOps side. So for the example, the image service that we built, had we tried to do the image manipulation in Elixir, there would have been no good answer. We had to introduce DevOps complexity by moving all the image manipulation to AWS Lambdas which yep. then let us only have to run two servers for everything else. And so, I mean, even before you get started, you can generally look at like, what is the most difficult thing that this like flow is doing? In our case, you know, receiving and processing images. And what's that going to look like if it grows? And you can quickly see that, oh, it's going to be CPU bound. So how can we relieve that pressure? Oh, maybe we can move the CPU bound work to Lambdas and then all of the other stuff is like unlikely to run into scaling issues uh, with any like reasonable amount of traffic. Yep. And I think you can do that analysis at a high level pretty early on in a project. And if if you run into something like that where you know, like, oh, I know for sure that I'm going to be processing like 500 images every minute, I probably don't want to do that in my rail server because like I'm going to have to spin up like 20 Heroku dynos to handle that. Mm-hmm. Whereas all of my web requests can just run on two dynos. And if I move this to Lambda, I don't have to worry about scaling ever. Yep. I mean, those are the decisions I think you have to make on the performance side. Like you don't want to over-optimize for some crazy scale you're not going to have, but you don't want to just ignore things that are very quickly going to create scaling issues. Like the moment you have any sort of usage. Yep. It's interesting how that like calculus coincides with app development calculus. Like you were talking about figuring out what what are the complex areas, uh, say like image processing, for example. 
you know, what are the complex areas within an app? Like while you're developing the app or architecting the app, there's going to be areas that are like, okay, this is just very clear, like CRUD type of work. And then there'll be, you know, something a bit more complex. And then there'll be like the really hard stuff. And so dividing that stuff early on, app development, DevOps, like really helps a lot. Yep. And yeah, the, the simple, like the most simple heuristic, I guess, that you can start with is you look at the main flow and you can generally assess like, is this going to be something that results in very high IO, memory usage, CPU usage? And the fourth is, I think, worthwhile uh, or database calls. And you, you can generally figure out, oh, one of these is going to be the worst one. And then there's usually a relatively straightforward solution that increases your DevOps complexity a little bit, but like solves that problem by like a factor of a thousand X. Yep. Like we had this issue with alerts, like with the, uh, with the telegram alerts. Yeah. Cause that was fun. Would you say that's fundamentally a DevOps thing? Basically the way we had it initially and then the way we decided to break it up. Yeah, that's fine. It was, it was exactly that. So like our app, because it's running on the Erlang VM, we are reasonably confident that the whole thing is not going to crash as a result of a failed request or a fail, you know, any of like our processes failing. But the Telegram stuff, you know, makes like essentially it's using a service uh, that makes calls to like a C application and can potentially crash the VM. And you don't want to put that on the same system as like your web app or all of your other sources because then like everything goes down if, if something breaks there. Yep. So we gave it its own little little sandbox. And again, that's a small, like that's essentially a problem that was solved with a DevOps decision that otherwise, if you had to run them all together, you might be doing a lot of like error handling or like you have to maybe solve that problem with code and this way we can essentially just let it crash independently and restart it. Yeah, and that's also a, it's a benefit that, Elixir and Phoenix, Phoenix brought us. Like, imagine if we had built that in Rails. Like, what would have been involved in in doing it? It just would have been a totally different architecture. Like, this was just yeah. pure DevOps config. Get another environment, changes a couple things, but not a whole lot. Yeah, the ability to just uh, you know spin up n different number of nodes that are running different applications in Elixir, but have them immediately just connect to each other, and instead of having essentially like the ability to treat our app as microservices, but have one code base and all the services can make code calls to each other rather than having to define an API or do some sort of, you know, manually do some sort of RPC. Yep. Like it saved us a tremendous, I mean, it enabled us to do this. Otherwise, like we, the two of us would not have been able to do the same thing. Right. And, uh, you know, getting back to that leverage. Yeah, so with that being said, I wanted to call out some like specific things that we do that like I think gives us a lot of leverage. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was uh, uh, Terraform. So anyone that's used any of these cloud providers knows that there's quite a lot of like upfront orchestration that you have to do to go set up your uh, your like authorized users within you know your cloud service setting up your like say your web instances your database your networking rules all your security rules like there's a lot of stuff that goes to setting up an environment and if you want to replicate that across two or three environments or make changes via like the console it's pretty painful yep and it's also hard to like see the state of things very easily 
And it's a completely different thing for GCP versus for Google. And what Terraform lets us do is essentially describe the state of our infrastructure with like a JSON-like syntax. And then it will essentially diff the state you described against like what the reality is and then tell you what changes it's going to make. And then you can apply those changes. So it's this awesome like description of state that then does like patches to your like real life infrastructure to get the state you want and you can track it in your version control. And, you know, once you have a, a setup you're happy with, it becomes very easy to spin up new environments or even like across projects, you know, make some slight modifications and you've, you've got a base setup that you're good to go with. Yep. The other big one that I like doing on a lot of projects is, uh, you know, we talk, I mentioned about how uh, you can quickly see if uh, queries are becoming database bound. And often we find when building APIs that there are queries that are, you know, doing like lots of joins or just like very expensive database queries, basically, for getting the data you want the API to return. And that's something that doesn't scale particularly well because you can add more web instances, but you still only have the one database that you're reading from. Yep. And there are techniques on the database side that you can use, like materialized views. You can spin up a second read-only database, things like that to speed things up. Or you start going down the road of like denormalizing your data, right? For like improved query performance. Mm -hmm. And I hate doing that because then you run into a lot of issues with like having to maintain the integrity of your data manually. So one thing that we like to do is have the one database keep all of your data normalized and validated and whatnot, and then uh, use a, like in our case, Elasticsearch as a place to, you know, serve all of your actual queries from. So basically you just index stuff in a way that your lookups will be very fast and then use something like Elasticsearch for most of your uh, read-only stuff. And we found that that essentially for reasonably sized projects, like just solves the query performance issue. Yep. And then the one other third one that I alluded to previously was with Elixir, we basically get sufficient I.O. performance that for anything that we've built, like scaling is a non-issue. A handful of Elixir servers will handle more scale than like any project that we've built uh, needs to worry about. Yep. With the exception of CPU-bound tasks like image processing, and then that's where the serverless functions come in really handy because you don't increase... DevOps complexity much. It's essentially you just add a webhook to your API that handles the output of that uh, serverless function and you're good to go. And yeah, like with those three things, I think you get a pretty high leverage set of tools that let you build an app that can do a lot of stuff, scale, doesn't have a crazy amount of complexity in terms of like getting people ramped up. And you can generally have a handful of commands for both uh, provisioning infrastructure and also doing deployments. Hey everyone, this is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you are an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at Quantlayer, that's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R, or email me at Vikram at Quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M like Monero at Quantlayer.com. I will write back. And if you like our podcast so far, please hit subscribe and rate and review us because that would help us a lot. Thanks. Thanks.